From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching James Corden, who hosts The Late Late Show on CBS. He discusses the challenges and the upsides of interviewing guests for his talk show during the pandemic. I found that people talk in a very different way within their own home. There's an intimacy in which people will share, you know? That is one aspect of it I've really, really enjoyed. Plus, James walks me through how his team turned his garage into a makeshift studio set, how these times might help people be more honest about how they're feeling, and the future of Carpool Karaoke, which is a recurring segment on his late night show. Here we go. James, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. How are you? I'm well, but you're already work. What time are you getting up to start work? Um, well, my work isn't the thing that wakes me up. It's the um, three small people that we have in our house who, I mean, this has been a constant now. So I have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And my nine-year-old son, basically his entire life seems to wake up at 5.30 in the morning, raring to go. And now more than ever, I find myself looking at him thinking, you have nothing to do today. You have no plans. He's like, come on, let's do it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Everything in your day's diary can wait. We're not leaving the house. What are we thinking now? This like art project, come on, early bird catches the worm. You know, this Lego is not going to build itself. It's a challenge. So that's, that's why I'm up. And then we had quite a breakfast drama this morning, and now we're here. So I'm, I'm overjoyed for the for the respite. What was the breakfast drama? Oh, you know, just the wrong milk or the wrong cereal, or you know, like, yeah, it was a mixture of both of those things. Where again, I wanted to say to my daughter, you know, when I was growing up, there was just milk. There were no other milks. There were no other milks. I get that you like oat milk. And Charlotte, like, but like, it's not that you're intolerant. You don't have some deficiency. You've just decided that you prefer this. And we have catered to this whim. And now that we don't like this, anyway. <laughs> have they wanted to partake in helping you with the show? Um, I've not really given them the, uh, the option of that, really. No, I don't think I would encourage that. I, I do feel like probably there is a strong chance that that certainly one of our children will want to seek a life in performing arts. But I don't know that we need to kick that off now. Yes, I see little evidence that um, being thrust onto television as a, as a minor is necessarily good for your perspective. But listen, I'm sure they'd be great and fine. But, but no, my, my parents are the only people who participate in the show, really. <laughs> Well, during the early days of the COVID-19 shutdown, many late night TV shows were the first to adapt their productions to this sort of new normal. How would you describe what it has been like figuring out how to do the show from home? You know, it, it, it's a challenge, really, for, for everybody. I, I'm sort of very conscious of not trying to make it seem like that, that it's so difficult. That, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, this time in the world 
I think the last thing anybody needs is someone saying, oh, we just had to change our entire show. Like, it just feels like the sort of epitome of high-class problems, really. Look, it, it, it's a challenge when you, when you have to remove so much stuff. So, like, our show, from the off, really, we've always wanted it to be a variety show every night. And we've always wanted it to have scale and scope and size, whether that's driving around Liverpool with Paul McCartney or running out into the road and performing a musical while the lights are red or taking the show and randomly, spontaneously doing it from somebody's house. We've always wanted to be the, uh, you know, and even in its in its most sort of quote unquote sort of normal format, having all of the guests out on the couch at the same time, wanting it to feel like a sort of late night dinner party where joy is the currency. So we've really tried to to um, hang on to as much of our show as possible. I think what we what we were very keen to do was not suddenly just leap into filming it. We we were like, I don't think there was one person on our team who thought, oh, we'll just be doing this for a couple of weeks and then we'll be back at the studio. We really felt like this is a minimum of three months, maybe it's five months, maybe it's a year, you know, who knows? So we sort of set about trying to build this makeshift set in my garage or garage, as I say. And, you know, we really, we have three cameras and we wanted it to be to be lit a certain way and still feel like, although it's completely different to our show, it's a satellite of it. I'm very proud of how we sort of responded to it. And the first thing we did before we even got our show back on the air, really, was we made this a special called Home Fest, which was to try and make try and make a completely global show, seeing artists in their own, essentially taking the thing that binds us all together, which is we're all indoors, and making a show that where we, we said we will bring people together by keeping them apart, you know, and then so like going to South Korea, and having BTS perform where they were together, Dua Lipa in London, uh, Billie Eilish here in Los Angeles, doing a piece with Will Ferrell, do, you know, and, and so we really tried to make that special. And then after that, we just really started leaping into what our show might look and feel like, you know? Well, that special was, like, there was a moment near the end where you talk about the anxiety you were feeling. And it was the moment that I think we could all identify with of like not knowing how to process our feelings, especially because there's this sense of we don't know when this is going to be over. And that's a weird thing to sort of grapple with internally. Um, so talk about like how things are for you now a few months in and that roller coaster like of emotions that sort of hit you when you don't expect it to or have you sort of found a way to deal with it now i don't think any of us can ever can truly say that we've found a way to to deal with it i sort of am always someone who will as best i can try to look for a, a positive in a, in a situation and the thing i keep coming back to is i, I really feel like there will be ultimately positives that will come from this to be clear in a sea of negatives and for me i've found already the most sort of positive changes historically 
if if you and I, like even now, just before we started filming, you said, how are you? And I said, oh, you know, and you and I said, how are you? And you were like, oof. And that, historically, we would have started this conversation. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. And that would be the same with our friends. And the same because we've been taught, conditioned to be like, well, that's how I feel. And if there's one if there's one thing I can really see as a positive to take from this that I really hope we hang on to is the ability to go, how are you? And to the, the honesty to say, do you know what? I'm struggling. And someone goes, me too. Do you want to talk about it? And that is an incredible thing. Like I've never felt further away from my family in London. I've never felt so far from them you know i've always been so aware of the distance but i there is so you're safe in the knowledge to go well i can be there tomorrow i can be there to, i'll be there tomorrow if if i need to or they'll be here you know and then when that's taken away you're like oh my god well i don't know if i'm gonna be are they all right are they okay all those things and yet i've never felt more connected to all of them because i'm checking in with friends of mine cousins of mine that i've Routinely would text, hey, how you doing? Good, cool. You know, and now you're in a position where you're like, are you all right? And and, and that is a is a major shift in our attitudes to mental health, that actually it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be struggling. There's also a kind of amazing thing in this where we've been conditioned to think that we all have to just be a success and be striving, particularly in this industry that we're, you know, to be a success and you are responsible. And if you're not a success, then you're a failure. And there's an amazing leveler in this where you go, it's not your fault. You put something out and it didn't work. It isn't your fault. It's okay to fail. It's okay to just try so long as you're doing it from the best place you can. And so, that's, I think, how I've been feeling throughout it. And I've just been feeling incredibly grateful. Like, I am painfully aware that I have nothing to moan about. Nothing at all. Zero. You know, I have friends whose partners have passed away as a result of COVID-19. I have a dear, dear friend of mine who came off a ventilator like a month ago. So I I'm overwhelmed with this feeling of like, well, what? can i possibly moan about ever nothing you know but do you also allow yourself to you feel like you do want to complain a little bit sometimes even though you know yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like don't make me feel bad james sometimes i need to just have a little pity party <laughs> i've said this a couple of times in fact i actually said it yesterday i said i have nothing to moan about but i'll give it my best shot <laughs> Look, I think it's okay to, to be frustrated by it. It's okay to feel whatever it is you're feeling at that point. So long as you understand that that feeling is a visitor in your mind or your heart. And the important thing is to go, this feeling has arrived. I should acknowledge that it's here. But I should also acknowledge that that isn't me. And I don't have to feel this way all day. And you have to kind of and this is true of life anyway, I think, Google Earth yourself from time to time and realize the scale of things that are happening and that these things will 
pass. But I mean, I I moan as much as anyone. <laughs> How would you say doing the show in this manner has made your conversations with your guests deeper? Oh, I would say a hundredfold, you know? Like, it's funny, you know? When I took this job, which I, I had real misgivings about at points and, 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 and I felt slightly reticent for quite a long time but about doing it. When I took the job, my frames of reference were like Jimmy Fallon doing lip sync battles, Jimmy Kimmel getting people to read mean tweets and like shots of uh, David Letterman covering himself in Rice Krispies and being lowered into a giant bowl of milk or doing like stupid pet tricks. And I was like, yeah, I can do this. And now... <laughs> It's sort of in this, like, I don't know, political sort of uh, environment where I I just, I don't know. I, I'm like, I'm fundamentally at my core, a, a performer, writer, and I really love making people laugh, you know. That's been a, a, a challenge in this. But the thing I've really, really, really loved is having our kind of deeper one-on-one -on -one conversations like the um the conversation we had with dr michael eric dyson was profound and beautiful you know our interview with joe biden i think is I, i'm again i'm very proud of it talking with nancy pelosi talking with governor gavin newsom talking with uh, all of these people I, i've really really enjoyed talking with this you know i, I had a wonderful conversation with congresswoman val demings and talking to her about police reform was needed. I've really enjoyed the depth of those conversations because obviously normally we have to have three guests out at a time. So a lot of that is it's a very different um, skill, really. You're kind of juggling a ball between you're constantly thinking of who's been involved in the conversation, who might have something to add, keeping it light and free, but never making anybody feel like that someone else might be dominating that couch you know it's a real sort of trapeze act shifting that conversation around this has been lovely uh, in a sense just talking with people also i found that people talk in a very different way within their own home there's an intimacy to it there's an intimacy in which people will share you know that is one aspect of it I i've really really enjoyed well, i was going to ask you to share some tips with me about doing zoom interviews because it's been an adjustment for me just because I feel like I have to perform in a way that I don't when I'm with a person face to face. It's been an adjustment for me. Like, what are you, what are your tips for Zooming? Well, I mean, I guess I would firstly, I would say uh, I think you, you're doing great. Very, very kind and uh, lovely, joyous smile there. Thank you. That's really part of the. That's half the battle, I think, to any of those things. The biggest thing, I think, with interviewing people over Zoom is, is, is making your guest feel under no uncertain terms that you are so pleased to be there having this conversation. That's how I sort of think. Whoever we're talking to, it, I'm so overjoyed that they're there, that they've given up their time in this moment in time to, to talk on a, on a show, that, that it's... Um, you're you're halfway there, really. I think. I think, and I think you're doing great. I mean, no doubt. Thank you. Truly. Have you had any major technical difficulties while doing the Zoom or video interviews? Um, yeah, all those same things, you know, because you can be talking to someone and their Wi-Fi is not great or whatever it is. 
has it been weirdly invigorating for the show? Like, are you finding that it's getting you to think outside the box or be more organic because you're in this situation where you kind of have to think of new ways to connect with the audience? I think there's been something quite freeing about knowing that the nature of doing a show on your own in a garage will never be the best example of what your show can be. So there is a freedom. It's quite liberating to go, well, this isn't what we want it to be, but it is what we are right now. So we'll just be, and we'll try to make the best show we can. I feel incredibly proud of the show that we're making. On and on we'll go. That's how it feels, really. This episode is brought to you by Run on HBO. From executive producers Vicki Jones and Phoebe Waller-Bridge comes HBO's new romantic comedy thriller series, Run. The story of a woman whose life is thrown upside down after she gets a text from an old flame inviting her to fulfill a 17-year-old pact. Starring Donald Gleason and two-time Emmy winner Merritt Weaver, the season follows the pair as they embark on an unpredictable train ride across the country and find out that neither person is exactly who they say they are. Vulture calls the series next-level escapist fantasy and Variety cheers as wildly fun. Run is for your Emmy consideration in all categories. The show recently celebrated its, what, fifth anniversary? Yeah. Like, what would you say you've learned about yourself in these five years in doing this show? Oh, God. I think I've learned to be a better listener. I've learned that actually the thing that really, really gets me creatively going every day is, is collaboration. And I'm very fortunate to collaborate with, I think, a group of writers and producers who are so ridiculously talented. I, I, I'm in awe of all of them that we work with. Sometimes, you know, we'll have conversations myself and, and our writing team and it will start with a seed of an idea over here and it will grow into something over here and I will look at our writers and I'll think you're you are absolute geniuses I am so lucky to be in your orbit every day and I and I miss them greatly I miss the the feeling of having an idea at 10 a.m and putting it on the tv that night taking a camera and running out on the street and doing something, you know? So I think the, the biggest thing I think I've learned is that I'm, I really, really love being part of a team. And, that, and I don't consider myself to be a, a sort of, that I'm the manager or boss of that team. I think I'm just part of it. These shows only happen because, the, because of the people who are working on them. It just so happens that it's a team sport until like, 5 p.m. and you stand behind a curtain and a curtain opens and you walk out, but you're still just carrying all of the things that that team of all of the, the, the sort of 
tools and clubs and things that that they that they pushed you out with you know and i i absolutely love being a member of a team i love it i love it more than i more than i think i thought i would the greatest days for me at our show and this has happened like definitely two possibly three times are when we you know will promote a writer's assistant to writer like when we did that with like our, our writer Tom Trevini or, or with like Kaylee it's just thrilling it's the thrilling thing when you're just in a team you're everybody's working to the same goal to the same beat to the same drum of it and that is that's the thing I miss the most doing it and it's the thing I have loved the most over the last five years how about what has struck you about the Hollywood publicity machine because I remember being at a party a few years ago and a publicist was talking about how her client was going to be doing the L.A. circuit of late night shows and how she was really hoping one of the shows would have her client do a bit because she wanted the client to have like a viral kind of moment. And that was so interesting to me because I remember a time when that was like the thing that you didn't want like your client to like expose themselves too much as like a human being in a way <laughs> but like the people now want to have those moments of the moments of fun or showing a different side of themselves on these shows well i mean that's that's really the that's the, the bedrock of our show really that's how it's i think managed to find uh oh what's that noise yeah, they're taking the uh, recycling bins. Oh, so long as it's you, that's fine. I was worried it was this AirPod thing. No, I'm sorry. It's like they know I'm doing this and they're like, let's make the most noise possible. <laughs> Have you had to deal with something like this, James? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, uh, we had, we actually incorporated a bit on our show in it where we, there's a, there's a building, they're building a house next to my house. And one day we were doing the show and there was just this like, like that, and we had to go out and sort of say, can we stop sort of thing? This is just, it feels like it's never going to stop. I'm sorry. It's fine. Don't be silly. It's great. Um, so, so what were we saying about being, and that's the, we never talk about our show as being on at a certain time. I think because for all of us, our egos won't allow us to acknowledge that we make a show that airs at 12.37 in the morning. So when we make our show, we think of the show and then we say it launches at 12.30 and it will be shared all day and it can be seen all day. And if it's good, and this is the greatest thing about making a show at this particular moment, is if a show is good, it will travel and people will find it, you know? Jimmy Kimmel recently announced He's taking a three-month hiatus from the show to sort of like regroup and, you know, detach a little bit. Do you ever think about doing something like that? Like, could you understand the need for it when you're pumping out a show like this? Well, look, I think Jimmy Kimmel, I think, has been hosting a show for, what, 18 years? 17 years? 18 years? That is a miraculous achievement. Like, I cannot begin. And I'll tell you the most miraculous thing about Jimmy Kimmel He's been doing it for 18 years and he is the single, like, loveliest, considerate person you could ever wish to meet or spend time with. You know, there will be a popular train of thought that would tell you that if you do a show like this for long enough, it would start to sort of break you somehow. And that just hasn't happened 
to Jimmy at all. I think he feels as energized by his show as he ever has done. So I don't know what the, the, the reasons for Jimmy do, but I think it's, I get it totally. Look, it's a strange job. Every day for an hour, you're just sort of there. In, and I didn't grow up with late night. It's not on in the UK, you know? So I never really understood the sort of intimacy of it, the intimacy of how you, of how people are with you in the street or whatever, because you're with people in their most intimate times, some, some, you know? And so we're very fortunate on our show that we have a sort of, a, a, a quite a, we have a, like a good little break because I have to go normally, normally go back to, to London to, to shoot this other thing that I, I, I do there. So we're very fortunate that we get a kind of good break. I fully support Jimmy Kimmel's want and need to do such a thing. And uh, and I applaud him for doing it, really. I applaud him for saying, this is just what I need to do. And, and, and I don't doubt for a second that he'll be back with a as consistently a brilliant TV show as he makes right now. Well, how are discussions going in terms of thinking about when you can get the show back? I don't really involve myself in those sort of conversations until someone comes to talk to me about it. You know, all I ever really think about is what can we do on the show tonight or this week or next week? I, I, like, I'm sure those discussions are taking place. And when and when they've come to one or two different options of what might be possible, then, I, then, I, then I'll think about it. It's really important to just think about this moment now, you know. Are you any closer to finding a workaround for something like carpool karaoke? We haven't thought about it. I, I, honestly, I, I don't see how we can really. And it doesn't matter if we don't. We'll see. It doesn't. That's yeah. Not one of us have thought. How can we do another carpool? So it's mo mainly no. We haven't. That we genuinely haven't thought about any of those things because really, who knows? No one knows anything. You know. So what does the rest of the day entail for you? Like, what's a typical work day? What's the next part of your agenda right now? Well, Yvonne, I'm already five minutes late for the next meeting that I have to go to now. So that will be a, like a, a, a Zoom with all of our writers and segment producers. And we will talk through tonight's show. Um, we'll talk through tonight's show and then we'll talk through any other bits that are outstanding for the rest of the week or pitches for this and then it will just become quite an organic sometimes it's a very very loose and organic conversation sometimes the meeting is over in 12 minutes because everything's done sometimes you're on there for an hour and a half talking about and there's a all you really hear is but what if we well wait hang on oh oh no there's a lot of that. Oh, I know we could. No, oh, no, we couldn't do that because that would be terrible over Zoom. <laughs> I love it. Well, before I let you go, we have a final question from our previous guest, Penn Badgley. I want to ask him what it felt like to have Stevie Wonder sing to his, was it his wife? I remember seeing him tear up with Stevie Wonder in the car. I want to know what that felt like. The thing I, I don't think many people know about um, when Stevie Wonder called my wife is she didn't know that he was going to call and was actually in a restroom. She was having lunch with a friend and she'd gone to the restroom and I called. And she says it was just the most bizarre 
kind of moment she could ever experience being in like a bathroom stall kind of um, listening to Stevie Wonder sing this. Uh, I found it beyond moving. And if I ever sort of catch it, if it's ever shown or anything now, it I'm still, as soon as I hear him singing it to her, I'm back in the car and my whole body, every hair on my, you know, body stands up. It was uh, a special moment for sure. Wow, I bet. And now I'm going to ask you to ask a question of our next guest, Davine Joy Randolph, who most recently played Charisse in High Fidelity on Hulu. Well, I would like to say, Davine, that I think she was so brilliant in Dolomite Is My Name. My question would be, I don't know if I would be able to keep my cool around Eddie Murphy. Was this a thing for her and did she have to take any deep breaths or was it just kind of cool and great from the off? I will definitely ask her that. James, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Keep up. That I will try. Recycling. <laughs> I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. That's it for the 28th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. And a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to Davine Joy Randolph. Whether I play an inmate whether I play a trash collector, whether I play the queen of Nairobi, like it doesn't matter. The same sophistication and integrity that I would put towards a queen is the same that I'm going to put into someone who collects your trash. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you tomorrow. <laughs>